0: What we're going to be looking at today is I became a Christian when I was 11 years old and so since that time I kind of grew up in the church and I had never heard this before. So it feels to me like something that I think is central in Scripture but isn't always taught from the pulpit. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the process of change. We're in a series called Relational reformation. Formation. Why do I keep saying that? Every time, Every time yeah. Um, focus. And it's what we're doing is we're trying to understand how does change happen in our lives. It's, I think we all want to change, but how does that actually occur and what does the Bible have to say about that? And so we looked at the purpose of change a few weeks ago. The reason why we would change is because of love. And then last week, we looked at the power to change, that we actually have demonic forces that are acting against us. The reason why moving toward love is difficult sometimes is not just because we're willful or stubborn, which is also the case often, but there's actually spiritual forces that are acting against us. And so we need something more than uh, willpower, determination to actually change. We need the power and presence of God's Spirit. And so now we're looking at the third component, which is kind of the foundation of change, which is uh, the process. So we looked at the purpose, the power, and now we're looking at the process. In... uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, it outlines two life paths that you could travel on your journey through life. And this is what it says. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And so there seems to be from this scripture two different ways that you can travel through life. The first, is called the path of the righteous, which today we're going to be referring to as the resurrection path. And then the second is the way of the wicked. And what we're going to be calling that is the path of self-improvement. Now, uh, this is the part that I had never heard of before. I'm sure that the pastors that I sat under taught it, I just didn't pick it up. That I assumed for years in my life, that there's only one way to change, and it's through self-improvement. And the idea is, is that, think of New Year's Eve. This is what it's all about. Is that you, you set a new target, and then you lay out a series of steps to get there. Has anybody done this before? Like, that's what we always do. I, I actually didn't know that there was another way. I thought the way that you change is you see where you want to go, you have a plan, and then you just lay out some steps to get there. And it seems natural and innocent and actually very helpful. Uh, I've done lots of change through having a target and laying out some steps to get there. Uh, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so I've just applied that verse. And if there's something that I need to do, I just decide to do it, trusting that God is gonna empower me to do that, and here we go. There's at least three problems with this path. Now, are you, first of all, are you getting the idea? Like, come on, haven't we, this is what we do. Like every day, if you have a problem at work, you're gonna figure out a solution and then some steps to get there. It's so obvious, It's hard to even recognize that we do it. I think it's just how we think. There's three problems. Number one is that it often fails. Uh, New Year's resolutions being an excellent example of that. That there are times when having a clear goal and setting out the steps just isn't enough. I don't want to. I'm tired. It's complicated. Other people are interfering with it. Uh, There's something out of my control or inside of my control that's undermining my ability to get there. So what we typically do is we say, oh, I know what the problem is. The problem is the steps weren't clear enough. That's what the problem was. I just need clearer steps. Or they were too big, and so I've never been good at long jumping, and so I've got to find smaller baby steps, as they say, you know, to move toward my goal, that's what the problem was. And if I could just have better clarity on the steps, I'm pretty much guaranteed success. But it seems that no matter how clear or how small and reasonable that the steps are, there seems to be things that come and interrupt that, internally or externally, that make us unsuccessful. The second problem is a little bit deeper. And that self-improvement produces pride or condemnation. So the goal of self-improvement is in the name. I'm going to become a better person. Now, if you succeed at that, you get proud. Because you improve yourself, you know. So you, you feel, wow, look at what I did. And you get proud. But if you fail, you condemn yourself. And so... Inherent in the path of self-improvement, inherent in pursuing self-improvement, we struggle with pride, not needing God, and condemnation. I'm a screw-up. I always know that I am, and I'll never be good for anything. So, what if the reason why we struggle to need God, and we often feel condemning and judgmental thoughts towards ourselves... It's not because we aren't working hard enough, it's we're on the wrong path. Inherently, if you and I choose self-improvement as a life path, we will struggle our whole life long with needing God and feeling insecure about our performance. Inherent in the path. So maybe our struggle with condemnation is not that we haven't tried hard enough, we're actually on the wrong path. Now, maybe this is new information for you, and so it's going to take some time to work this out in our heads, because it, it, it's, I'm still trying to figure it out. I typically assume that if I'm not achieving what I want, I haven't tried hard enough. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there's another reason for your lack of success or for the condemnation that you feel when you fail. is that there's a whole other way to approach life that is not based primarily on your performance. The third problem with the self-improvement path is that it's not about love. It's possible to improve ourselves and become really good people, kind of, and it not being about love at all. I'm just becoming a better person. I want to be more fit. I want to be more educated. I'd like to make more money. And I can apply self-improvement to becoming a better person, a more successful person, and miss love entirely. In fact, love and relationship undermine our pursuit of self-improvement. You know, I say, you should see me when I'm alone. I'm, I'm awesome. Uh, it's everybody around me that messes me up, you know. And so if self-improvement is the goal, it might have nothing to do with love. Self-improvement produces neither gratitude nor generosity, which I would suggest are the two primary expressions of love. It doesn't produce gratitude because I worked to get what I want. Why would I be grateful? I work for this. I deserve this. You know how hard I tried? And generous. Well, you got to try too. I'm not going to give you a free handout. I don't have enough time for that or strength for that. You got to figure that out. I'm too busy improving myself. Self-improvement has little to do with love. Now, you can say that that's what you're improving towards, but there's a better way to get to love, than through self-improvement. Proverbs 14.12 says this about this path. There is a way that appears to be right. And man, if anything appears to be right, it's the path of self-improvement. But in the end, it leads to death. Proverbs 10.28 says, The hopes of the wicked come to nothing. I listen to people uh, plan out their life. And it's just so frustrating for them when it doesn't seem to come to anything at the end of it. And I'm suggesting to you this morning that it's not because we didn't try hard enough. It's because it's an entirely different path. So when love is our life purpose, when spiritual forces are our problem, we need a matching process in life. We wanna get toward love. If there's something bigger going on than what determination can overcome, we need a better process. And the Bible teaches that it's the resurrection path that is the alternative to the path of self-improvement. Jesus is our model in Philippians chapter two. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. So you have the living God, uh, fully God, not a little bit God. Jesus is fully God, and he does not grasp to be even equal to the Father, although he is. He doesn't grasp for that. That's not his concern. He's not looking for power. He's not looking for self-improvement and to become a better God and a more powerful God, getting more, demanding more respect. He's not thinking about that. Shocking. But he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient. The living God becomes obedient to the Father, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And at this point, we're all supposed to gasp, going, what? The living God suffering the humiliation of the cross? Shocking. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Just... Remarkable. What God does this? Takes the road of humility and lets God be the one, the Father be the one who exalts him, not himself. No, no regard for self-improvement. Spends an entire life not trying to be a better person, just trying to be a more loving person. Shocking, shocking difference. Scripture talks about this idea of death and resurrection over and over and over again. In John chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The only way that we can be fruitful in our life is if we die, not if we improve ourselves. The seed actually has to die and rot in the ground for it to produce new life. Shocking. Who thinks like this? Romans 6.4, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. This is the Christian way, is the resurrection path. Let me read one more. Luke 9.23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's the song that we just learned, to lay it all down. This is the Christian way. So what we find in Scripture is the way to change, the way to fulfillment and to becoming more loving is through weakness, not through strength. Now, what does that mean? Okay, I need to change, and I've got to get weaker to get stronger. Okay. What does that mean? It's through self-denial, not self-esteem. Don't put up your hand. I wonder how many here today are working on loving themselves better. And you're thinking that your problem is that you don't love yourself enough and you're learning to accept yourself just for who you are. And you're learning to believe in yourself and trust in yourself that really deep down you are a good person and you just need to tap into that better. And the, and the Bible just just uh, contradicts that in the most violent of ways. What are you pursuing self-esteem for? I'm trying to, I'm trying to kill your pride, not massage it into beauty. It can't be done. The way to change is through humility, not self-confidence. Again, okay, picture something that you want to change. You want to get richer, smarter, thinner, stronger, whatever it is, nicer. Self-confidence. Like, what else is it? And the Bible says it is not self-confidence. That is not the road of the Christian. It is humility. And through humility you will become a a person who's able to give and receive love in an incredibly new way and it had nothing to do with self-improvement. Nothing. This is just mind-blowing. So why does the Bible speak about uh, death and then resurrection? Why doesn't it speak about incremental steps of growth. Why do we not see this in scripture? It's because the problem that is undermining our ability to change is self-centeredness. The reason why you and I struggle to receive love from God, from our employer, from our friends, while we struggle to give love to all of the same, is because of our self-centeredness that stems all the way back to Adam and Eve. We follow well in their footsteps in Genesis 3. The number one problem in our life is we're shockingly self-centered. Now, I, when I grew up, I... I I was a good kid. You would have, you would have probably liked me as a child. I know things have changed, but as a child, I was, uh, I was just, I was always a good kid. Always. You know, I tell you, I never, I, I touched a cigarette once, you know, I touched it. (laughs) And uh, I, I never swore. I was always respectful. I, I did my homework without being asked, <laughs> like I'm just an outstanding child. <clears throat> and I'll tell you what I figured out as a young kid. I looked at, uh, we had, um, we had a, a number of foster children live with us. And so I watched their life and they were really wild and they would run away and do all kinds of nasty things. And I remember watching their life, and I go, that doesn't look better, being rebellious. I'm just not interested in that. They're always getting in trouble, and they're failing at school, and their life is going nowhere. No, no, no. I figured out that if I'm nicer, it's better. I just figured that out. Thoroughly self-consumed. Not touching the cigarette, being nice, doing my homework. Nothing to do with love. Never thought of anybody else but me. And I think it's possible that uh, we actually use Christianity, the morals of Christianity, the truth of Christianity, to self-improve. And then when we find that it doesn't work super well, which, by the way, it doesn't, then we just move beyond Christianity. Because I signed up to become a better person. And this whole death thing is messing with me. And they keep talking about love and self-sacrifice. What does that have to do with self-fulfillment? But what if the deeper issue that's going on in our life is not about becoming good, that it's self-centeredness that is really the problem. And so if self-centeredness is the problem, then there's only one appropriate response to self-centeredness, and that's to kill it. You don't improve self-centeredness. You just become more egotistical. You do baby steps to becoming more egotistical. This is what you do. Think more about yourself. Break it down. Ignore everybody else. You don't, you don't improve on self-centeredness. You kill self-centeredness. So the idea of tweaking our life and fixing our life is, is absent in Scripture. You just don't find it. Like here's a helpful little tidbit. You know, you see it on... I still haven't done the Instagram thing. You know why I don't like Instagram? Because the name at the top... Isn't your name maybe. I hate that. How do I know how to enjoy that moment? I'm not gonna remember all your little cute names. I just hate that. So I'm still on Facebook for only that reason. That I, I feel better that I confess that to you. And uh and when I'm on Facebook so <laughs> old school, that uh that you know 10 things you didn't know about how to be better at this. And everything in me needs to press that button because for sure I don't know all 10. I just need to know how to be better on my phone. And this workout, I just, oh, everything in me, I vibrate needing to press the button to know the 10 extra things that I don't know. Because I am conditioned to fix, not die. The orientation of our life, of our society, is fixing, not death and resurrection. The the moment when you leave this auditorium, everything that's gonna come against you is never talking about what we're talking about right now. It will only be about self-improvement, fixing, tweaking. We have no help outside of God's word of how to die well that we can experience the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ in how we live. No help. And don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can somehow integrate a self-improvement path with the death and resurrection path. They are incompatible. And the moment that I think, oh, I just have to do this, I just have to move the dial, just uh, fixed. (laughs) Why didn't I see that earlier? As soon as I start thinking that way, who's in charge? Who's in control? Who's managing their life? It's all about me. And I forget that my root problem is my self-centeredness, And egotism and pride. And when I do well, all it does is bolster my problem, not defeat it. Here's where the drum roll is required. What is the... This is just... Man. Okay. What is the real purpose of change? Now again... I know that we all want to be thinner and stronger and smarter and make more money and give more to the poor. I get that. What I'm suggesting to you is all of those changes are symptomatic of a deeper issue. Yeah. And the deeper issue is this. This, uh, this is uh, fresh for me this year. I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't say it hopefully as clearly as I could say it right now. I'm trying to build it up. All right, the real purpose of change is shifting our control and trust from self to God. I think that that's all that's ever going on. When love is our goal, we want to give and receive love, become more loving people, the, the journey Toward love is death to, uh, I know what the Bible says, death to self-control. I know what the Bible says. But death to being in charge and being in control and being self-defined and self-fulfilled is dying to control and moving to trust in God instead. So I've run the scenarios through my mind, and we'll, we'll look at a few. I'm quite convinced that anywhere where I spot a problem in my life where I'm not loving, my real issue is I've not figured out how to trust Jesus in that area. I'm still controlling it somehow. That's usually what's going on for me. Proverbs 3. Guys, it's a popular verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Jeremiah 17, 5 and 7 says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And then Galatians 2.20 says it the most clearly. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, here it is, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have crucified myself, and I now live a life of trust. And my freedom and victory and liberation is in the ability, in any given moment, to die to my pride and self-centeredness and to trust the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in any given moment. And when I am living a life of trust, I'm free victorious, giving and receiving love, self-fulfilled even. So, when trust changes, we experience love and victory. And the way trust changes is not through self-improvement, but through death and resurrection. Let me give a few examples of this, and then we'll close. So you're following me. The way that we experience love, the way that we experience victory is not through self-improvement, is through death and resurrection. Dying to ourself and living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So how does this work? Let's say that you're having a problem forgiving people. There's somebody in your life who really betrayed you, <clears throat> who took advantage of you, who, uh, who stole from you in some way, whether it was your dignity or money and so, what is the self-improvement way? I should work on that. What I should do is, I should step number one is see them as victims. So I'm going to see them as they grew up in a hard background too, and and I, you know, I, I should be aware of that. And then I should, I should, uh, I should work on being kinder inside because I'm not very kind sometimes. And so I need to ask God to help me be a kinder person. And then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna practice ways of saying to people, I forgive you, because it's really good to say the words right. And so I'm gonna say, I'm sorry for, and make sure that I don't have an excuse at the end. You can take notes on this, this is outstanding advice. I'm gonna put it on Facebook a little later. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, and then you, you, there's certain ways to say it that allow people to receive that well, all right? I can work on my forgiveness. Or I can die to my self-righteousness and let my Father be the judge of others and not me. I can die to my self-righteousness, my judgment, how dare you sin against me Do you know who I am? And you sinned against me? How dare you do that? I'm going to have to work that through, that you would sin against me. Do you see the difference? The real problem of my forgiveness has nothing to do with forgiving you. It has everything to do with my pride and self-righteousness and self-esteem. And you violated how good I was feeling about me just then. I don't like it when you do that. You should work on that. I'm going to have to forgive you for that. Are you, see how different this is? This is radically different. I'm not working through forgiveness. I'm dying to judgment and self-righteousness. This is different. Addiction. Can fill in the blank of whatever your favorite addiction is. So how do we tweak that? How do we tweak addiction? Well, it begins with the phrase, I'm learning. That's what all, it always begins with. I'm learning. I'm learning to, 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 to identify my triggers. Write this down. This is gonna be good. I'm learning to identify my triggers. And I'm learning to make better choices when those triggers come along. And here's the self-talk that I need to be working through in those moments. And then I have a script that I learn, that I memorize, so that when those triggers happen, I say a better thing inside of my head. Or I say, my addiction is graphic evidence that my old self is still kicking and is alive and well, demanding my attention and causing me to do things that I'm not sure I even want to do. And I need to die to self-management and throw myself at the cross and say, if you don't save me, pardon me, I'm screwed. If you don't save me, I am lost and hopeless, and I will die an addict. I don't need to be helped, I need to be saved. Yeah. Don't give me a program, give me resurrection. Right. I need a new heart. Conflict. <clears throat> James, uh, the book of James is just excellent at this. You know, Why is there conflict? Well, we're self-centered. Yeah. I hate it when you don't agree with me my whole day and and God would come and say don't work on you know uh, reflective listening and I statements and you know when you insult my pride you know I feel hurt (laughs) I just want you to know I feel better that I got that off my chest okay now you do your part waiting for it I understand that you feel hurt when I insult your pride And so I am sorry for the way that my behavior affected you. Thank you. I receive your apology (laughs) in my heart. And from now on, I will try to believe that that is true about you. Isn't that sweet? I feel closer to you. Or we'll say, uh, your disagreement of me has awakened me to just how deep my pride and egotism runs. And I don't know how to say this, but thank you for showing me who I am and reminding me how the appropriate response to this moment is to die yet again to what's evil. That Jesus' life would be manifest in my heart and in my behavior. It's a different way of thinking. Now, this isn't going to happen overnight. Self-improvement has been so ingrained in us. It's just what we do. And I'm offering to you what I understand from Scripture to be a better way to liberation. If you, if you struggle with self-esteem... Kill it. Don't tweak it. Kill it. And let yourself be defined by the love of the Father, not by your own love. Of course you feel inadequate because the wrong person is defining you. Die to that. And say, Father, who do you say that I am? And now we're living a brand new life and we haven't improved anything. We've died and Jesus has lifted us up. Just say one more thing, and then we're going to, we'll close. Uh, I tell the story, so sorry if I, <clears throat> but I remember when my mentor taught me this. It just blew my mind. I'd never heard of this before. It changed my life. And uh, he was my pastor. And so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been wrestling with it for a few years now, and and, uh, and I says, you know, I says, why is it that whenever I hear you talk about this, you only ever talk about the death side, not the resurrection side? Like, that's a little negative of you. Like, why don't you talk a little bit more about, the, you know, the good news of what Jesus does and how he sets us free and like that, you know? And then he, his response, I'll never forget his response. He said, you're right. So I said, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, disappointing again. <laughs> like, you're not helping me. And, uh, and so I just, I didn't have the courage to ask him why. So I just thought about it for another decade. <clears throat> and then, uh, and then it, it, became, it became clear to me that my job is to die, and his job is to make me new. And I always want to do his job because it sounds more exciting and it's where I want to get to. But my job is to figure out how to die. And if I can die, he is more than faithful to make me new and to give me a resurrection life. Resurrection is barely my problem. He's taking care of that on the cross through the power of the Spirit. He's just looking for dead people to breathe life into. And so my job is mostly, in my areas of struggle, is letting go and is practicing the art of dying. Again, it is so foreign. It is so foreign to our society. I think of how we, I think of the difference between how I buy meat in Canada and when I go to other nations. I go to other nations and you've got dead things hanging like all over the place with flies. and It's like, I don't want to eat that. I want my chicken in plastic. I don't want to know where it came from. I don't like thinking about the little chicken. I want it in plastic. I don't even want to see the skin. It looks all cold and bumpy. I want it off the skin with the bone removed. I just want the nicest part. That's what I want. That's how I want my chicken. I don't want to think about killing things. Let them kill them. I'm better than that. They kill. I just eat the nicer chicken parts. <laughs> I, just, I just hate. I just hate thinking about dying and killing and ugh, it's no fun. <clears throat> My friends, we somehow have to figure out how to befriend death if we're ever going to figure out how to experience the resurrection life of Christ. Can we do this together? Can we figure this out together? Worship team, would you come up, please? We're gonna have full communion today. And so what's gonna happen if those of you who are handing out communion, you can start to do that now. That's your cue. (laughs) And uh, if what you can, uh, if you can start to hand it out. Now, what you're holding in, in your hand in a minute is not the chicken at Safeway. It's the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ broken for you. This is a, this is a sobering, graphic portrayal of what Christ has done for us and what he actually invites us into. And so as, as, we, as we worship, as we consider these things, Understand what's going on and what's being offered you. Okay.